Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Patty Peltakos and I'll be your host this hour. On today's show, writer Dan Egan will be talking with me about his new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Dan's first book, the New York Times bestseller, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, also won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Dan is the journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Center for Water Policy. So, WORT listener, you might be wondering why you need to pay attention to phosphorus. Here is what Dan writes in his introduction. Many in the general public might not yet be aware of the phosphorus troubles the world is headed toward because of the element's dual roles as a dangerously potent toxic algae booster and as an essential and increasingly scarce crop nutrient. On today's show, Dan will be introducing us to the devil's element, phosphorus and a world out of balance. And WORT listener, because today's show was pre-recorded on Tuesday, March 21st, 2023, we won't be taking your questions during the broadcast, but we would still love to hear from you about today's show. You can email your comments to us at talk at wortfm.org. Dan Egan, welcome back to A Public Affair. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining me today. So, so Dan, um, what got you started investigating phosphorus? Well, I, I wrote a book about the Great Lakes, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, that came out in 2017. And while I was doing research for that uh, book, specifically uh, the algae troubles on Lake Erie, I was introduced to phosphorus. And at the time, I thought, whoa, this is way more interesting than a story about the lakes. And so I just kind of filed it in the back of my mind as something to pursue. And then about a year after the book was out, the publisher came back and asked if I had any other ideas. And I said, actually, I do. And uh, <laughs> I said, phosphorus. And, um, you know, needless to say, they didn't just leap at it. They said, <laughs> why? And, um, and I wrote them a memo and um, explained, you know, what grabbed me about it. And you know, this first book took about two years to find somebody to buy the proposal, and, and this really happened in a matter of a couple of weeks. So I convinced them. Now my job is to convince everybody else. Well, but I'm I'm assuming that writing the book took you more than two weeks, right? Writing the proposal took me two weeks. Writing the book took about four years. Yeah. Thanks a lot to COVID. Uh, that's that's stalled things quite a bit. But yeah, it was it was a pretty lengthy process. Yeah, yeah. So I guess diving into phosphorus. Um, how was phosphorus discovered, and how did people come up with the name phosphorus? Well, phosphorus was, it's, it's been around since the beginning of the universe, and it's in every living cell, but it doesn't normally exist on its own in the natural world. It's always bound with other atoms, <clears throat> typically the oxygen atoms to make phosphates, which are a critical fertilizer. But elemental phosphorus is no more natural than say a styrofoam cup um, it has to be conjured essentially and that's what an alchemist did back in the 1600s in Hamburg Germany um, he was chasing the philosopher's stone this mythical substance that's supposed to be able to turn lead into gold and um, and so he thought he could derive it from from human excrement and so he cooked urine and did a bunch of other hocus-pocus and the end result after a couple of weeks were some waxy glowing nuggets uh, called phosphorus, bringer of light. Uh, that's the Greek, loose Greek translation. And yeah, I mean, it got its name because it it glows. It casts this lum- phosphorescent uh, kind mm. of, 
Mm -hmm. which glow. It's also very dangerous stuff. It's first of all, it's poisonous. Second of all, if it warms just a tick above room temperature, say to 80 degrees, it'll just blow up. It just combusts and, and burns with an intense ferocity. And that's uh, one of the reasons why they call it the devil's element, because it's so dangerous. It's also the 13th element to disco discovered. But uh, yeah, it's, it's long been used as a weapon of war. It was called Willie Pete during uh, Vietnam, or white phosphorus. And, and it's even being used today in some cases, oftentimes uh, contrary to the rules of war. Mm -hmm. um, you're allowed to use it to light up the night sky or to cast a smoke screen, but it's also really a psychological weapon too because it explodes in globules and they'll burn through a house or through a, through a person. Um, it's, it's really nasty stuff. I mean, you have you have a pretty horrific story um, in *The Devil's Element* about about a German man walking along a beach picking picking something up, which turned yeah. out to be phosphorus. Could you could you tell me that sure. story? Yeah. So the the book kind of it starts in in Hamburg, Germany, where it was discovered, and then it, it goes back to Hamburg real quickly, which the city was burned to the ground by the Allies in 1943. Um, once they got, once the English got back on their feet and got a bunch of, uh, us, uh, planes, they, they took the fight back across the English channel. And at that point they realized that the best way to bomb a city wasn't to blow it to smithereens, but it was to burn it to the ground. And they used phosphorus bombs among other things to do this. Um, when you drop a phosphorus bomb, it explodes like in the air many times and there'll be these globules like it looks just like fireworks just you know those that smoke kind of trailing this glowing glowing ball well those glowing balls are phosphorus and if they hit a house they'll burn they'll burn through the roof all the way through down to the basement and everything along the way they'll do the same to a person and um not all these bombs hit their targets a lot of them exploded over water and as I mentioned earlier, the stuff is stable until it gets warmed above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And when it hits cold water, it just stabilizes. And so <clears throat> the Elbe River running through Hamburg is littered with this stuff, as is the Baltic coast, uh, another target, nearby target of the Allies because of the V1, V2 rocket factory uh, up there. And so people, beachcombers, will walk along the beach looking for semi-submerged uh, bits of amber, which the Baltic Sea is also famous for because it used to be a conifer forest and a lot of the resin from those trees is now uh, amber. And that it's something that beachcombers just naturally, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very valuable. And uh, they're, they're actually scouring the beach looking for it. Unfortunately, phosphorus kind of looks like amber. And so people accidentally pick it up and in this case, this gentleman picked up a piece and he thought it was a fossilized oyster shell, an orangish colored little pebble, and he put it in his pocket and then his leg just exploded. And he was in, you know, kind of an older gentleman and he's sitting there thinking, I don't smoke, I don't have a lighter in my pocket. What just happened? He stuck his hands into his pocket and all he felt was, well, a searing, but he pulled it out and there was just like this goo and his fingers were alight like candles. And so he instinctively walked into the Baltic Sea in the middle of the winter and started screaming for help. And if he came out, it would go back, you know, everything would flame back up. So they were in a predicament. They, they thought about bringing in a helicopter, but they thought he'd bring down the helicopter. They eventually took him away in an ambulance. And I, uh, if I remember correctly, they kept the wounds wet enough so it could be extracted safely at a hospital. And, uh, it took him years to recover from these burns. And this isn't like an extraordinary incident. Um, it doesn't happen every day, but it happens, you know, several times a year, both in on the Baltic coast and, and on the Elbe River. And so, yeah, I figured it is a book about phosphorus. So you kind of got to come out strong with an interesting story. And that's that's where I started. I also thought it was really interesting that Hamburg is, is, is Phosphorus's birthplace, really, and, and then it was destroyed by the stuff right. in World War II. So it, it sounds like working with Phosphorus is really um, quite dangerous, but, but you had an idea that you were going to try to recreate in a certain yeah. way this alchemy using your dirty fryer. 
best equipment I had. Yeah, <laughs> best idea I had. Like I said, I kind of I wanted to start the book strong, so I thought that's a good that's a good place to start. Um, unfortunately, it's I didn't realize how complicated and dangerous it was. I had my father-in-law on board, and he he's deceased now, but he was a uh, chemical engineer who actually worked on catalysts to pull nitrogen out of the air for fertilizer because phosphorus, nitrogen, and potassium are the three main components of modern chemical fertilizer. Right. <clears throat> anyway, you need to cook this your this urine, whosever urine it is, at exceedingly high uh, temperatures for a really really long time, like uh, like weeks. And you add some stuff. I mean, it's pretty complicated. There's just a lot of hocus pocus that goes into it. And there's different phases where things are condensing and things are vaporizing. And I was finally um, told by a guy from Johns Hopkins University who specializes in recreating some of the alchemists early experiments to uh, don't even try because we don't have the equipment, you know, even in labs today that can withstand the heat that's required. And the closer you get to making it, the closer you're going to get to blow you, blowing yourself up. And uh, he said, I actually, he said that he actually did try it and uh, it, it didn't work. So I, I scrapped that and uh, moved on. Uh, and and getting back to what you were saying earlier about phosphorus being something like, you know, blowing up like a firework, is phosphorus a part of fireworks? Is it a, a, an ingredient? So. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. There might be some compounds... But no, I'm not a firework expert, so I can't say. That. Right. But I would, I would really doubt it because you do not want um, globules of phosphorus dropping into Lake Mendota, and um, <laughs> no, and for people to find them. No. But Lake Mendota is getting heavily dosed with phosphorus in the form of uh, manure and and fertilizer. So that's 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 really a big part of the story. Indeed, it is. If you are just joining us, you are listening to a pre-recorded edition of A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. This is Patty Peltakos, and on today's show, writer Dan Egan is talking with me about his new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Dan is the journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Center for Water Policy and the author of The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. And WORT listener, because today's show was pre-recorded, we are not taking your calls during the broadcast, but we would still love to hear from you. And you can send us your comments at talk at wortfm.org. So, so Dan, getting back to um, how phosphorus is actually, how it actually exists out in the world, where, where does phosphorus, where is it found um, say as a phosphate, what are what are the places where you can find it? Well, yeah, and and so this this story, and when I say this story, I guess I'm talking about the book. But the book is a story. It, it, it quickly moves to to agriculture and the never-ending hunt for soil nutrients. And as I just mentioned, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. We now know are the three big critical components of modern chemical fertilizer. But back in like the 17 and 1800s, people didn't know what it was about certain materials that made crops grow. They just knew that if you didn't replenish a field, it would soon play out and you wouldn't be able to grow turnips as well or even at all, or wheat or whatever you were trying to coax from the soil. So some of the early pioneers in England would experiment, they'd throw blood, hair, bones, and bones actually turned out to be under their crops, bones turned out to be particularly effective. And they they initially relied on like shavings from knife factories. The bo- the handles were made of bones and they would take those shavings and spread them on the on the landscape. Or sometimes they'd just take plain old bones and stick them in the ground like miracle grow sticks. And um, whatever it was, they knew that they wanted bones because bones made crops grow. And, and that propelled them into some pretty strange places. Soon they were hunting all over Europe for bones. And uh, in this book, I go to Waterloo. During that battle in 1815, some 40,000 people fell in like 10 hours, along with a whole bunch of horses. And um, like by 10 years later, there was not a bone to be 
found on on that sweeping battlefield because the British, a number of years after the war, realized that it was a trove of bones for agriculture. So they went back and plundered the fields and uh, brought the bones back and ground them up in special bone grinding mills and continued on with, you know, their their crop growing. But there's only so many bones and battlefields to loot. And, and, and a lot of Europeans had a problem with this. So, so the hunt pressed on. And it was somewhere like in the probably early, maybe the first three decades of the 1800s, chemists tinkering at the time started to isolate, okay, what is it that we need um, to make a crop grow chemically? They were getting much more analytical. And that's when they realized that, that phosphorus was what made bones so potent. And that put them on a path to find other sources of phosphorus. So when the bones played out, they ended up over in South America on the, on the Guano Islands, which are just basically mounds, mountains of uh, dried bird poop off of Peru. And the reason there's mountains of dried bird poop there is that it was a nesting area for all the fish-eating birds following the fish up the Humboldt Current up the west coast of South America. And so they needed a place to, to raise their little birds and to um, nest. And so they'd go to these islands and, and their poop would accrete because it would normally, on an island like this, wash into the ocean with rains over, over time. But here, over eons, it just stacked up. So, bam, we have a, like a, bo- a bird poop bonanza. And this is starting like right around in the 1840s or so. And it was thought to be an inexhaustible supply. And soon, much of Europe and the United States were in, in trade with, with Peruvians uh, going down and, and shipping this bird poop back to their ports and spreading it on their fields. And again, they thought they would never run out. And again, they did. And that happened in about 1890. By then, the chemists knew exactly what they were looking for in terms of phosphorus. In, 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 and when I say phosphorus, I mean phosphates, but it's it gets confusing. So I just I just stick throughout the book. And uh, after talking to some chemists, they said this is the best way to keep people from having their heads exploding, trying to figure out what we're talking about. But um, yeah, they they ended up uh, figuring out that certain relatively rare rock deposits were also phosphorus rich. And, and this was right around 1890 or 1900. And ever since we've been mining the earth uh, for this critical element to, to keep our population fed. There were like a billion people on planet earth in, in the year 1900 and, you know, barely a century later, we're now at 8 billion. And that would, there's no way that would have happened if we hadn't untapped the miraculous properties of phosphorus and nitrogen. The difference is nitrogen is, isn't going to be scarce anytime soon because the atmosphere is the air, the air is almost 80% nitrogen. There's a lot of potassium deposits around the globe, but there aren't that many uh, phosphorus deposits. We have in the United States in reserve maybe three or four decades worth before we risk becoming dependent on other countries for our food security, which is, I think I would argue, much more critical than energy security because there's workarounds to carbon fuels and there is no workaround for phosphorus. It's in every living cell on the planet. So... 80% of the reserves right now in the world today are found in Western Sahara and Morocco. And so that could be like, you know, the Saudi Arabia of the mid 21st century, not in terms of fuel, but in terms of food. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I found it pretty fascinating that you, you write about Florida um, and the the bone deposits that are in Florida, and and also some of the issues that Florida is facing with with toxic algae. Um, so yeah. this combination of of having kind of the the raw material there, and then the the impacts of kind of an overuse of that raw material. So what what is what is the uh, I guess the the source of the the reserves in Florida and and how long are those forecasts to last? Yeah, as I mentioned, the, the U.S. most of the U.S. reserves are in Florida, and, and we're on track to run out of those in a matter of decades, four decades maybe. And 
it's basically sedimentary rock that's also littered with with uh, fossilized bones. And, and that's why these rocks are so phosphor, most of these rocks are so phosphorus rich is because uh, it's sedimentary rock that is basically dead life that accreted on the ocean floors over eons and then through tectonic forces or ocean levels receding um, made its way to land where it could be found and then, and then mined. And that's what's going on in Florida. But yeah, you're right. The The Florida situation is really interesting because it really illuminates what I talk about in the book as the phosphorus paradox. The idea that we're running out of this critical, this essential plant nutrient um, in the form of these, these phosphorus rocks. At the same time, we're overusing it to the point that we're poisoning our waters because the fertilizing properties of phosphorus don't disappear or dissipate when they wash off a cropland uh, into water, they, they they grow more stuff. And in the case of water, it's algae. And these days, uh, for a number of reasons, it's increasingly toxic algae. So in Florida, which is very, very agriculture in the center of the peninsula, and it's also very phosphorus rock rich, um, you've, got, you've got all these mines, but then you've also got all these agriculture lands and for, you know, more than 100 years, those agriculture lands have been draining into Lake Okeechobee, which is a big 30-mile-wide lake, pretty shallow, in the middle of uh, Florida. And that lake is just overdosed with phosphorus. So it grows this green goo called uh, blue-green algae, or the specific type is microcystis, and it's poisonous. It'll kill dogs. It, it can make humans really sick. It's actually the toxins produced by it killed dozens of people in Brazil when when the water supply got can, contaminated with it and at a dialysis center. So you'd think, well, that's just a problem on a lake in the middle of Florida, but it isn't because this lake has a history of overflowing its man-made banks because it's been basically, it's surrounded by a dike built by the Army Corps of Engineers almost 100 years ago and it's in danger of collapsing. So the Army Corps doesn't want too much water to get into this lake to put pressure on the dike walls. So through canals and locks and channels, they release that water. And it's not just water, it's, it's toxic goo uh, to both the Atlantic coast near Stewart, Florida, and to the Gulf Coast near Fort Myers, where you have you know lots of people living and lots of people getting sick. Um, it doesn't happen year round. It's, it's typically in late summer and it doesn't always happen every year, but when it does happen, it's, it's nightmarish. And so you, you also write about, um, Lake Erie and the, the impacts of the toxic blue green algae in Lake Erie. Um, could, could you tell me a little bit more about how the Lake Erie situation developed and especially, the impact on, on drinking water for the people who depend on the lake for, for their drinking water. Yeah, it's the same. It's not the same. It's a similar situation in Lake Erie as it is to Florida. Basically, the problem is agriculture runoff is, is uh, polluting the water, and, and then that's opening the door to these algae blooms. And on Lake Erie, they get huge, and they, they happen every year now. Uh, to varying degrees of severity, but they're so predictable um, that they actually have a forecast every year, like in late June or early July, based on what the weather's been like and how many acres have been fertilized and how much has been spread, how much chemical fertilizer and manure. Manure is a big, a big um, source of uh, agriculture waste that is causing these toxic algae blooms. They they can predict how big they'll get and. And when, when they come in, you can't swim, you can't fish, you don't want to be on the water. The cover of the book is actually, it looks like a green fire, but it's actually a, one of these toxic algae blooms on Lake Erie. And um, in two, it's, it, you don't even have to like go to the beach to be exposed to it. In 2014, a plume of it got, a plume of the toxin produced by it got sucked into the drinking water supply Toledo, Ohio, and now almost a half a million people lost their drinking water supply for three or four days. And this wasn't a matter of just, oh, we have a boil order. We'll just wait for this to pass. 
it was poison. So if you boiled that water, you would just concentrate the poison. So the National Guard had to come in with like, think about babies, you know, they need to drink. Everybody needs to drink. But they were bringing, the National Guard was bringing in pallets of baby formula and tankers full of water. And, you know, you think about this happening on the edge of the world's largest freshwater system and you can't safely drink water even at that point through treatment that made its way through treatment plants. It's just kind of absurd. And so we've got this collision course kind of between agriculture, which we all need food and, and water, the, the safety of water supply. We all need water. And, you know, there aren't any simple answers, but the, the basic one is we've got to stop overdosing our waters with, with so much phosphorus to the point that we grow this noxious algae. And you can see it in Madison. I mean, you go down to Lake Mendota on the terrace, you know, summer afternoon, and there should be somebody sitting in the lifeguard chair at the end of the dock, you know, where the students can swim. And, you know, you can swim early in the, in the year, but almost not every year, but it's pretty predictable, just like Lake Erie. By late summer, that, that water's nasty, and you, you don't want to dip a toe in it, let alone a, let it, your dog go in it. And so how, how does the water kind of resolve this, this overdose of phosphorus? Well, eventually the, the stuff dies off, the, the algae dies off and sinks to the bottom, and the lake's okay for what, what, as long as it's not too uh, warm and calm for too long. But the, the only way to, the lake can only take so much, you know, it's, it's kind of accreting on the lake bed and it, it does get tied up in sediments. So it's, it's not always, it's not what's on the bottom of the lake that's always fueling these blooms. It's what's coming off the landscape in that particular year. You know, Dane County is heavily uh, agriculture and it's, it's waste from farmlands. And right. just, the lake can only take, th- that lake and any lake can only take so much before it starts coughing up this noxious, this poisonous goo. And it's being asked to take too much almost every year now. And, and so the lake and, and as a consequence, the Madison community is suffering from this. Right. What's the solution? The solution isn't, it's not to get rid of agriculture, obviously, but we, we can't, we can't overdose the landscape to the extent that we have been, or we're going to have, we're going to, this is just going to continue and it's going to get worse. Right. Again, if you are just joining us, you are listening to a pre-recorded edition of A Public Affair. My name is Patty Peltakos, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Dan Egan, who's talking with me about his new book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Dan is the journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Center for Water Policy and the author of The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. And once again, WORT listener, because today's show was pre-recorded, we won't be taking your calls during the broadcast. But you can still reach out to us with your comments. You can send them to us at talk at wortfm.org. So, so Dan, I mean, there were a couple of themes that really struck me when I was reading your book, the, the theme of um, phosphorus and its relationship to war. Of course, phosphorus um, being used in farming for agriculture, but also, um, and uh, I know this is going to sound a little, a little off, but, but phosphorus, phosphate coming through our urine and, and our poop which is really what the issue is for the farms, right? I mean, that we have this excess of manure that's been excreted by, by animals, and it's in many cases liquefied and applied to the soil, and especially like in northeastern Wisconsin, but in other places in Wisconsin, and for that matter throughout the country, um, there's such an excess that's applied that it, it can't be absorbed, and it it runs off. Yeah, you know, the agriculture industry has gotten a lot better about um, how and when uh, and how much it applies chemical fertilizer because the stuff used to be really cheap and it's still relatively cheap, but it is being recognized that we're on pace to to run out of the U.S. supplies probably sometime this century. Um, So, so... But we, we, we do suffer from the years when it was cheap and, 
you know, farmers put more on than they needed just kind of as security. Like a little's good, lots more. In case it rains, you know, we want some of it, to, some of it left over on our land so it can be taken up by our crops. Um, manure is, is a big problem too. And the bigger the farms get, the bigger the problem is because there's only so much manure a, a piece of land can take. But the cows don't stop pooping just because the land is getting saturated with manure. So it's a, it's a remarkably effective uh, fertilizing material. Like if the English, when they were hunting for bones, if they could see the size of the lagoons at these modern dairies, they wouldn't see that as a waste lagoon. They would see that as a trove of nutrition for humanity. And it is. But when it's not used right, it's, it's, it's a poison for the water. And so that's the situation that we have. And it's not confined to the Great Lakes or to Florida. It's, it's everywhere. And so we need to start looking at manure as, as a resource rather than as a waste. And in doing that, you know, we probably need to start treating this manure. I mean, there's a lot that can be harvested out of it. Carbon, um, we get methane. And we can get we can get phosphorus and nitrogen out of it, and that you know it can be refined to the form of pellets where it's pure as anything that's coming from a from a fertilizer factory, and this is obviously going to cost money, and and farmers are obviously not they're operating on thin, if non-existent margins in many cases already, and I'm sure they don't relish the idea of more regulations, and more treatment of you know or treatment of their of their manure, but you know, we've got to do that if we want to have healthy water. Right now, you know, milk is, milk, the price fluctuates a lot, but it's it's overall pretty cheap. But it's not as cheap as it seems to be at the grocery store because the price for making milk cheap, it isn't just, you know, it, it shows up in our water. Right. It shows up in your ability not to go down to Lake Mendota or whatever to go swimming in late summer or in being able to depend, you know, in the case of Lake Erie, depend on the lake no matter what for your drinking supply. So there are real costs being borne right now that um, aren't reflected on any ledger. And as a society, I would think that we need to rethink this. And nobody wants farmers to go out of business at all. And so the price of milk may go up, but we're already paying the price in other ways. And so if milk does end up costing more money, but in exchange we get water bodies that are functional and healthy, you know, it's a societal decision, but I would argue that that's, that's, that's a fair price. Um, another thing in doing my research for this book that, you know, it's, and it's not a call to action. It's just, it's more just painting a picture saying, these are the consequences of what we're doing. And this is the path we're on. And this is what the future is going to can look like if we don't start getting more elegant in our our, our use of, of phosphorus it's not historically you know they it's it's like a drop of water phosphorus never goes away it just recycles through the environment but we've built this system and you know it was really the stitch in the circle of life it, it would a cow would eat grass a cow would poop grass would grow off that poop a cow would eat the grass and on and on and on and on it was this virtuous cycle that we cracked with the invention, the advent of modern chemical fertilizer. And we took the circle and we turned it into a straight line that runs from a farm into our waterways. And it's just not working right now. And it's it's only gonna become more acute. And as I said, I don't really see this book as a call to action, more as just connecting dots to paint a picture. But one of the, one of the components or pieces of that picture that kind of blew my mind was the idea that 40% of the corn we grow in the United States now goes to ethanol, which most people don't recognize as really a good, a good idea in terms of environmental and economic benefits. It benefits corn growers and benefits them handsomely, but it really, you know, it was, it was supposed to be this miraculous source of renewable energy that would wean us off of other countries' uh, oil supplies. And it does some of that, but the inputs it takes to grow that corn and then make that ethanol, in the end, you're not really gaining anything in terms of energy. Well, it's it's debatable how much you're gaining or how much you're losing, but 
most people who don't grow corn or make ethanol don't think ethanol is a good idea. So then the question is, why does it persist? And it's politics. Right. You know, if you want to be president of the United States, you got to do well in Iowa. And at this point, at least, that's at the top of the primary calendar, the Iowa caucuses. And anybody who, who wants to do well in Iowa has got to basically pledge allegiance to ethanol. And so you have people, even Al Gore, you know, he, he said publicly that he rues at the fact that he supported it, but he had presidential ambitions. And that's the case with, with almost everybody who's been running for president since the ethanol mandate came online in the 1990s. So, but if you just think about like almost half the, half of our corn is, is not going in our stomachs, but it's going in our fuel tanks. It just, it does. It's, it's like something out of Dr. Seuss. Right. Or it's going to animal feed. It's, it's not animal feed, but I mean, but even then it's going to the animal feed, you know, ends up in us and milk or meat. Or right. Whatever. Right. I mean, it's indirect, but that's, a, that's but... another thing, our diets. Yes. But, and that's only going to get worse because we're on our way from 8 billion people to 9 billion people and as developing countries you know, continue to develop, they're only naturally going to want a more luxurious diet. And that will likely mean, in many cases, meat. And so meat is, you know, a, a big consumer of, of, of nutrients. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, some of that's why I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell everybody that we've all got to stop eating meat. And I'm just, I'm just painting the picture that's emerging on the horizon and, it's not, it's not comforting. No, no. So there's there's also um, what you call the phosphageddon, which gets back to um, running out of phosphorus. And you had a quote in the book from from FDR, from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, about phosphorus. And if if you could tell me just a little kind of about about that history, and then and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I didn't coin that phrase phosphageddon. That was a couple other uh, uh, scientists who actually wrote wrote a book on phosphorus a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, they talk about look the 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 end to our current system is coming. It could be a soft landing or a hard landing, and you know the hard landing is phosphageddon when all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to run out run out of all phosphorus reserves for there to be real problems. You just need regions to not be able to get fertilizer and then you don't have food and then you have riots and this happened in 2008 for a number of reasons fertilizer prices just spiked and there were riots around you know in haiti and in uh, in india um yeah you don't it's it's not it's like kind of like peak oil you don't have to run out of it all for all of a sudden people to feel squeezed but in this case it's not their ability to drive a car or heat a house it's to eat and so, yeah, that's that's the dire one dire picture painted by these uh, these scientists. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? Uh, the other part was FDR, and I and I guess this really oh, yeah. goes back to you know that we're we're running out. I mean, he was talking about this what eighty eighty some years ago. Yeah, he was. You know, and and so these two guys who wrote the. This, this book, one's from Arizona State University and one's from a university over in England. They say their only goal is to get the president of the United States, whoever he or she may be, to, to bring up the phosphorus conundrum uh, or to even utter the word phosphorus. That's the, if, if that happens in their, in their careers, they will have done their job in alerting the public to this emerging issue. Um, but the president in the past has spoken of our phosphorus reserves. And uh, yeah, I do quote FDR in the book in the back in the 1930s, I believe, just talking about how it's so essential to the, uh, the future security of America. And we need to find a safe, reliable, predictable source of it. And, and, uh, and we need to manage it well to ensure that we have, you know, healthy agriculture, which is going to lead to a healthy population. And one of the things in the book that was interesting, too, is, um, you know, the, so the United States, we started running into soil fertility problems in some regions in just a matter of generations, mm. mm-hmm. you know, two generations or three. And all of a sudden, we're the, the, the nutrients in the soil that have been there for thousands of years 
are, are, are being sapped and not replenished and the crops aren't growing. And, and so there was this guy, can't remember what the FH stands for, but FH King, who has a building named after him at the University of Wisconsin, uh, the Soil Sciences Building, just up the hill from the limnology department, which is the study of freshwater, which is kind of an interesting coincidence. But he went over to, to uh, Korea and to Japan and to China in like 1909 or 1910, 1909. And uh, he wrote this book called Farmers of 40 Centuries. And he went over there to answer the question, how can these guys who've been farming the same plot of land for thousands of years still have harvests to this day that were exceeding the U.S. results? And he went over there and he just saw a model of thrift. He saw how manure, animal and human, was being managed in such a meticulous and precise way that they could just keep a field a field uh, producing rice or whatever they were growing year after year after year with no signs of diminishment. Human waste at that time was literally gold. They sold it. There was a region in Shanghai where like this one section of the city, the rights to harvest the, they called it night soil, but the human waste, which was carted out to the farm country in literally in carts, wasn't set in sewers or pipes. Um, it was one year, like in the early 1900s, it sold for a million dollars in gold, the right to, to all that human waste. And they would cart it out to the farm country and they would cart back the bounty of the farm country. Hopefully they'd wash the carts along the way. I'd assume that they would. But <laughs> right. on and on it went. And he, he, he paints this fantastic scene. I can't remember which country it was in. I think it might have been Japan, where there was a cow that was working a wheel, turning a well. It was yoked to some giant wheel. And there was a boy tasked with just following him with a big wooden dipper, catching him, catching her, the cow's manure and, um, and putting it in a, some sort of a kettle to be applied on the fields. And he said when he first saw the kid doing that, he was upset that somebody would be, you know, tasked with such drudgery. But then he watched that wheel go round and round and thought what the kid was doing and how many years and decades and centuries this went on. And he thought, this is how it has to be. It has to be, we have to restore this cycle, this circle of life. And, um, you know, there's still areas in, in, in Asia where they use night soil, but we, we, we went the other direction in the 1850s, 60s and 70s with construction of sewer systems. Mm -hmm. You know, the big ones in Paris and London you know, people were getting really sick. It, right. The cities were growing so big and, you know, it was, they, they did some fertilizing with their night soil, but I don't think ever to the scale and to the precision that, that was done in Asia. But then the answer was simple. And this is really where we cracked the loop in a big way. The, the, the loop of the circle of life with construction of those giant sewers in, in London and Paris, where we just flushed all the waste out to sea and no longer tried to live in harmony with, you know, what the land could produce and what we could, we, we could supply to that land. Right. So it's fascinating stuff really. And, and I do go into, you know, what, what prompted the, the London sewer binge of the mid 1800s. And it really is interesting how everything is connected. Well, and also that it's once again, using water to, um, to move, not necessarily to clean the waste, but certainly yeah. to move the waste. And, and so it's, it's putting it, in, in many cases, back in the water um, and, and using water to, to sort of cleanse it, which doesn't quite yeah. work. Yeah, when you think about, you know, the, all the, the treated water in a toilet bowl and that flush, I mean, how many gallons are in a toilet flush? Like eight gallons or something? I, I don't know. And that, that, yeah, that's, that's just being used and that stuff is treated to, you know, extremely, depending on where you live. I live in Milwaukee and you know, we have great drinking water and it's being, it's, you know, a lot of it is consumed by us, but a lot of it is just used to flush our waste away. And so I start this book in Hamburg and I go back to Hamburg when it was destroyed in World War II and at the end... I end the book in Hamburg because Germany has 
a law and I can't remember if there's, I think there's some, it's not the whole, I don't think it's the whole EU, but I know Germany <clears throat> has a law coming on the books at the end of this decade where basically all the phosphorus in the wastewater treatment plants of the big ones um, needs to be removed. And so they have a state-of-the-art facility on the banks of the Elbe River now. It just came online, I think, late last year. And it can basically get all the phosphorus in the waste stream, the human waste stream, uh, from Hamburg and capture it. They can distill it into, and they're careful to say it's not going to end up in food products because there is <clears throat> some use of phosphoric acid is like in some sodas it gives it a, its tang but they're they're producing food grade uh food grade phosphorus at these plants that can be used to fertilize the field and so it's kind of the circle of life coming back around in in phosphorus's hometown does does that require a tremendous amount of energy dan to uh it does it does but they can they're also they have digesters at the facility and I think that they are a net exporter of the energy that it takes. So, you know, there's a nature build elegance to the circle of life that we, you know, inherited and, and it's going to take elegant thinking to, to bring it back. And that's what I saw in Germany to see these, you know, these giant digesters and this factory sized uh, phosphorus factory. And yeah, they have windmills at the, at the, um, Wastewater treatment plant, it's its supposed to be a model of sustainability. And from my tour, it looked like they had accomplished that. And were they able to remove things like the pharmaceuticals that are, are such a prevalent part of, of both animal and human waste? Yeah, I believe so. So that's the thing. Like right now, we do, like Milwaukee has malorganite, which is, right. you know, a fertilizer that comes from the plant. But it's not refined to the extent that, that Germany is doing it. They're getting it down, you know, to the molecular level. So they aren't having issues with the heavy metals and the pharmaceuticals. They're, they're getting the, you know, like I said, it's pure as anything that's coming from a, from a modern chemical fertilizer factory. And that's probably where we need to be headed. So you, you don't really address this in the book, but I, I figure you've, you've spent so much time with this, you have to have been thinking about it. Um, do, you, do you see necessary changes to the Clean Water Act as, as what has to happen to kind of change our relationship with phosphorus? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we had algae troubles in the 1950s and 60s driven by phosphorus, but at that point it wasn't really agriculture driven, it was uh, industrial. And, and more specifically, it was all the phosphorus that we were putting in detergents that were, you know, the fuel that went into all the washing machines that went into all the basements after World War II and our factories could start making home products instead of weapons of war. And at the time, when they began to regulate phosphorus in detergents and in and, and discharges from sewage treatment plants, which you, they are a lot better, the discharges are a lot cleaner than they were, but there's still a lot of phosphorus in those discharges. Um, they, they thought that that was enough and it was, in terms of regulation to bring, like Lake Erie at the time was called America's Dead Sea because the algae blooms, you know, they, would, they were so vast and then they would die and then their decomposition, decomposition would burn up so much oxygen, almost nothing could survive in big swaths of Lake Erie, hence the name America's Dead Sea. Well, they basically put the lake on a phosphorus diet, and they accomplished this by better wastewater treatment and, and um, phosphor, detergent formulas that weren't so heavily phosphorus-based. They left alone the Clean Water Act architects and the federal government and the president, ultimately, left alone agriculture largely because they saw it as uh, the, the pollution too diffuse and not significant enough to warrant that kind of rigid regulation. And so now 50 years, 50 plus years down the road, um, so backing up real quickly, in regulatory parlance, they talk about point source polluters and non-point source polluters. And point source, source polluters are anything with a factory or a, uh, a pipe. And, you know, the idea being that you can capture that and clean it before it's discharged. Non-point is just runoff from the landscape. And agriculture was 
considered at that point non-point non-point pollution so it was largely unregulated but today the farms are getting so big and i talked earlier about those manure lagoons those are by definition arguably point sources of pollution and now that it's all been corralled into one place instead of spread across naturally spread across the landscape by pooping cows now you can do something with it as i was talking earlier you can get the methane out of it and you can get the phosphorus out of it so there are opportunities here. It's not like modern agriculture, big big time farming is at odds with water quality. In many cases right now it is, but there's a path forward where they could be in much more harmony. Okay, well Dan, we are we are just about out of time here. Um, and I wondered if you had anything else that you wanted to tell listeners before before we are out of time. Um, no, I mean, I, I guess it's that I'm not trying to demonize agriculture here. And again, I'm not trying to say this, we need to do this, this and that, but I guess it's just for people to think, you know, next time they're at a lake and it says no swimming or don't swim if it's got, if, you know, there's this brilliant green, like almost like paint uh, scum on the surface of the water. Think about why it's there, where it came from, and if it has to be that way. And, you know, my argument, such as it is, is that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Well, Dan Egan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your new book today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, thank you. Yeah, and I I hope that you're working on something else that uh, maybe goes a little beyond phosphorus for uh, for a future book. Yeah, I'm telling you, it just came out uh, two weeks ago today. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you're not thinking about the next one. Right. Yeah, I'm going to take a little breather, let my voice get better, and um, yeah, give my wrists a rest from the typewriter. But yeah, I do plan on keep reporting about water and environmental issues across the uh, Midwest and the U.S. Well, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for, for talking today. Thanks for your time. Okay. Again, on today's show, I've been talking with writer Dan Egan, who's been talking about his book, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Dan's book is published by W.W. W. Norton, and it is now available in bookstores and in the South Central Library System, everyone. So put a hold on the book. And if you haven't yet read Dan's book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, you can get yourself a copy of that, too. Thanks to Jade for producing. Thanks to our news director, Sholly, for everything she does here at Wart. And WORT listener, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported.